I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 14 in the series, You Were Dead, Letter to the Church in Colossae. All throughout his letter to the church in Colossae, Paul has been reminding them of what it takes to persevere in the way of Jesus. Now he's going to further spell it out with a game of compare and contrast, positive and negative. In the winter of uh, 1999, I traveled for the first time to a faraway city to play music in a band. We'd been doing this local thing as a band for about two years at that time, and we had managed to connect with a small venue in Atlanta, Georgia, which is some four hours north of where we were after sending. This is how the process worked back then. You would send a demo cassette by mail and then call them on the telephone. And even the idea of doing something that we'd already done several dozen times at that point, but we were going to do it in another city, one that you would have to travel to. That was intoxicating to us. And the weekend venture became, in essence, a concentrated foretaste of the next 17 years of my life. The trip was incredibly fun. The whole band had uh, a couple of tag-along friends. We all piled into a van together. We drove for hours. We ate bad food. We carried around heavy stuff. We played a set. We put the heavy stuff away. We went to sleep in a crappy hotel room, and then we would started another long drive. But not an hour into the trek home, we were sideswiped by this massive semi-truck, which smashed our little Ford Aerostar, against the concrete median strip, and it erupted a few windows and a spray of glass and popped a few of their tires, temporarily disabling the entire vehicle. The truck that had hit us powered on and never looked back. was a hit and run. And of course, this was 1999, so none of us had any cell phones. A couple of us walked a few miles along the interstate to the nearest exit, where we called my dad from a Waffle House payphone. And then they hobbled back to the broken down van in the freezing weather to rejoin the rest of the party, and that's when it started raining. Uh, We waited for hours while my dad made his way north, and when he finally arrived, I stood over him in the rain with a flashlight while he leaned over the open hood doing these repairs before I helped him change the tires, all of this in the freezing rain. We duct taped trash bags over the broken windows. We played paper, rock, scissors to see who would drive my dad's warm, dry car back home, and who would have to ride in the barely surviving wet, freezing band van. I lost the game, so I had no choice but to sit huddled with two other losers uh, and being pummeled by icy rain for hours while the others fell asleep on the warm, relaxing drive home. And what I remember worst about the awful scene, how long it seemed to last, was how badly I wanted to change clothes. I had brought one outfit for the trip. I'd left in the same outfit that I was in at the time, so I'd played in it the night before. It was thus caked with sweat and muddied from the walk to the Waffle House and smeared in grease from working on the van and torn by the effort to change the tires in the dark and then drenched with sheets of icy rain for hours, just locking everything inside. We eventually arrived at my parents' house, soaked and stinking and encrusted in layers of ice and grime and misery, and every moment was unpleasant. I remember how amazing it felt, how instantly different in every way to remove the old clothes and don the new ones. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 in the New Testament, we're in a summer-long study of one first-century letter written by Paul and then sent to a church in a city called Colossae. 
Now tonight, I will warn you, we have a lot of weird things to talk about, including sex and cuss words and culture wars, and it's going to sound weird to a lot of you, I'm sure, and there's lots of work to do. Are you guys okay? Are you feeling all right? Great, thank you. Let's read from Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me as a gesture of reverence and respect for the reading of scriptures? Paul writes to the church in Colossae, put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. These words are inspired by God. Go ahead and take a seat. Last week, we talked about Paul's command for disciples of Jesus to set their hearts and minds on things above. If you missed it, you can go back and catch up on the podcast. The long and short of it is that Paul understands that becoming like Jesus is neither natural nor instantaneous. Like any disciplined way of life, you have to eat, sleep, and breathe the way of Jesus. You have to embark on an ongoing, lifelong, disciplined, and deliberate quest to consciously, with effort, Keep God ever before you. Now, beginning with tonight's text, Paul is going to begin a game of compare and contrast, positive and negative. Now, a lot of folks, I realize, don't want to hear this kind of thing from Paul, and I'll go ahead and warn you, there's more of it coming. There are a lot of, as far as I can tell, kind of fragile ears in today's theater of, you know, the sensitive glass chin hysteria, and cover to cover, the Bible isn't much worried about scaring these people away. And it's not just Paul and his theology or Paul's ethics. Cover to cover, it is a wild book. Have you read this thing? (laughs) It's bananas, weird, wild stuff. And that's one of the reasons that I love the Bible and wanted to be a Bible teacher. People ask me, why is it that you gravitate toward outrageous and offensive art? And I answer, because I'm a Bible teacher. I am in this stuff every day. Forget Italian horror movies. Have you read Judges? (laughs) Horrifying. Yikes. But it's also complicated, like all good art. Interpreting the Bible takes work, and that's why we're doing this. I I don't want to get ahead of myself before we even wade out into the deep water. So let's do that now. (laughs) Whew! Deep breath. Now, look at it this way. If I were paraphrasing the message of Colossians up to this point... I might summarize Paul's message this way. It's kind of like, look, guys, you were in a bad way, and then God saved you. He shouldn't have, but he did. And now you have each other, so you should be grateful for that, and you should keep at it, keep showing up, keep being involved in one another's lives, keep meeting together, keep learning, focus your mind on Jesus' teaching every minute of every day, commit yourself to the way of Jesus, let your gratitude shape your discipline, and your commitment to God and to one another. Then you will be strong and fortified in your faith and you won't be led astray by false teaching or anyone trying to fudge or mislead you. 
your heart and mind will be made strong and you will have one another to keep each other strong and to hold one another accountable. Then, in tonight's text, he gets super specific. Look, if you want to follow Jesus, then you can't live like everyone else in the world. There's an old way of life. And then for you, Christians in Colossae, there's a new way of life. And you have to remember which thing is which. Remember, Paul is writing to a church made up of both Jewish and Gentile disciples of Jesus. The Jewish disciples of Jesus understood Christianity as an outgrowth of Judaism. So they had a paradigm for the Torah, for God's way of life. But the Gentile disciples of Jesus came from paganism. They had no paradigm for Yahweh, the scriptures, or anything else. So Paul has to actually spell it out for them. Look, you were doing these things yesterday. Now you have to stop doing these things and change your life entirely. So again, look at chapter 3, verse 5. He writes, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he makes a list. He starts with just a few softballs. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now the Greek word that my Bible translates as sexual immorality is pornaya. And Paul uses this word as kind of a broad junk drawer term that encapsulate, encapsulates all expressions of sexuality that deviate from the admittedly narrow paradigm that God created to contain sexuality as presented in the scriptures. So in the scriptures, backstory for you, God's paradigm for sexuality is something that is to be expressed and enjoyed between one man and one woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. That is the fireplace for sexuality, if you like. Outside of the fireplace, the fire is destructive. This paradigm is consistently represented from, represented from Genesis to Revelation and assumed, adopted, and upheld by Jesus and now Paul, subsequent writers of the New Testament, the early church, on and on and on until now. So any sexuality that is not one husband and one wife in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant, whether that's fooling around or foreplay or sex, outside of marriage between boyfriends and girlfriends or fiancés and fiancés, or whether it's pornography or fantasy or objectification or sexuality expressed between men and men or women and women, all of this is outside of God's design for sexuality according to the scriptures, to Jesus, to Paul, and is therefore pornaya or sexual immorality. Now, remember that in the scriptures, expressing sexuality is completely unessential. God created sexuality, and sexuality expressed within his paradigm is good. It's not a bad thing. But in the Bible, no one is less human or less whole for not expressing their sexuality. Exhibit A, Jesus of Nazareth, the absolute greatest example of what it means to be a human being, and he was celibate. He did not get married. He did not have sex. Exhibit B, Paul, who wrote most of the letter, or he wrote the letter we're reading, and he wrote most of the New Testament. He was not married. He was not having sex. Now, I'm not exactly sure how the worship of marriage and the myth of the soulmate proliferated in American Christianity, the idea that God has a special someone out there for everyone, and finding that someone is a crucial part of your life journey and your discipleship. But frankly, both of those ideas are complete nonsense. Now, don't get me wrong, marriage or wanting to be married are not bad. I'm married. I'm, I'm happy about it. Before I was married, I wanted to be married. But in the New Testament, singleness and celibacy are actually mentioned as being uniquely advantageous for the kingdom of God. Again, Jesus and Paul were single, seemed to have worked out pretty good for those guys. So there you go. 
The Christian movement all throughout church history has never deified sex. Many of the great figures of the faith embraced singleness and were willfully celibate. I have several friends who follow Jesus and who deliberately and consciously embrace singleness and celibacy right now. Again, sex and marriage aren't bad. God made them up. It was his idea. But you don't need them to be human, to be whole, to be a fully formed or mature disciple of Jesus, to follow Jesus well. You don't have to have either. Now, the easy analogy to use is alcohol. The scriptures have several good things to say about wine, for example. And they also have many, many bad things to say about the destructive power of drunkenness. The drink itself isn't bad, but it can lead to death if it is abused. I've never had alcohol. I never will. I know a couple of disciples of Jesus who enjoy the occasional glass of wine or beer or whatever, and they don't get drunk. And I know many, many, many disciples of Jesus who do enjoy alcohol and also get drunk. If you decide to enjoy God's gift of sexuality, He created a specific place for it to exist, and it is often, like alcohol, easily and dangerously abused. One commentator I read this week said this, The reason for the list's focus on sexual vices is not prudishness, but the realization that the husband-wife relationship is first and foremost the most profound interrelationship in which faith has to be proved. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that that's the most profound venue for discipleship. Not at all. Again, Jesus, single, you get the idea. But the idea is if you decide to get married, to live with another person for life and share deep wells of physical and emotional intimacy, it will put your faith to the test. Your willingness to serve and value another person will be put to the test. So it's not about rules for rules' sake. It's about the way that God designed the universe to function. Obviously, enjoying alcohol exclusively within the realm of total sobriety narrows its use significantly, as does God's design for sex as something that takes place exclusively between a married and monogamous man and woman. And yes, I know, obviously, it's not exactly a popular position, and even with a crowd this small, chances are talk of this kind is making someone squirm. But here's the thing that you have to understand. The thing that has made evangelicals look foolish for decades and marred the reputation of American Christianity with its ridiculous culture war, it is a big world out there, and quite frankly, its sexual proclivities are none of my business. So look at it this way. I have chosen for myself a decidedly radical way of life, and I'm trying to carry out that way of life with other people who have chosen the same thing. Outside of that, I don't have much to say about it. Like, I really hate the Olympics, personally. Oh, you're booing me. You're not booing with me. Oh, okay. I was like, whoa, solidarity? <laughs> wow. I'll take it. Yeah, Kiana hates the Olympics too, everybody. She said so. <laughs> I don't like the Olympics. Abby, my wife Abby, has had it on in our house the last couple weeks. It's just really funny to me. You know, people are in tears over someone throwing a heavy ball. Or like someone does a flip in a sparkly leotard and everyone hits their knees. <laughs> it's like, now... What do I know? Obviously, I can't do it. So as I understand it, these Olympians adopt their own radical way of life. Their Olympian peers probably understand that. But if they're just walking down the street and they see some schlubby, gray-stubbled man eating a cheeseburger, would they slap it out of that guy's hands and shout, what are you doing? You have to be in the gym today. You should be doing hours of drills every day if you want to do flips in a sparkly leotard. 
And he would be like, what? What the heck? I don't want to do flips in a sparkly leotard. That would be absurd. The guy with the cheeseburger eats the cheeseburger. But if, if he did come to the gym and begged the trainer, make me a gymnast, I'll do whatever you say, well, then he would have to adopt the radical way of life. If you don't follow Jesus, I have no business judging whatever it is that you think about sex and how to express it. But within the church, if you want to follow Jesus, there is a way of life that comes with it. Paul is writing into a world of what was, in his mind, wild sexual deviance. Remember, Paul was a first century Jew, and prior to becoming a disciple of Jesus, he was one of Israel's religious leaders. He kept Torah, he believed in the scriptures, he was single, he was celibate at the time of writing the New Testament. So he would be conservative by today's standards, or kind of like he had a really hardcore, almost fundamental take on what it meant to be the people of God. This is someone who was used to keeping kosher and keeping Sabbath and following all the rules in Leviticus. But then Paul traveled throughout the Roman Empire planting churches. He didn't hide from the culture. He moved in and through it all the time. Historians note that it was totally common for Roman men to have a wife for procreational sex and then, you know, to sire children and build for themselves a a family, a dynasty. But then they would shamelessly indulge in recreational sex in the public square with slaves and prostitutes and young boys. We have all kinds of art and graffiti from the first century, coins, statues, sculptures, mosaics, pottery, murals, poems, featuring everyone from commoners to royalty engaged, engaged in graphically erotic depictions of men and men, women and women, and lots and lots of men with little boys. Pederasty was a huge thing in the Roman Empire. And this was the world that Paul knew, socially acceptable, totally culturally normative. And here he comes with his Hebrew scriptures and his tiny little movement saying, listen, that's the way the world is, but for us, it's either monogamy between a husband and wife, or it's celibacy, like I'm doing, Paul would say. And that's about as radically contrary to the culture of sex, the sex norm, as it gets then and now. And Paul makes it explicitly clear that this way of life is not to be imposed on those outside of the movement. It's not for the public, it's not for politics, it's not for legislation, it's for those who choose to belong to the movement. Like an Olympian who chooses a radically disciplined way of life but would never expect someone else to spend hours a day on a balance beam. In his letter to the church in Corinth, he writes, I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, meaning outside the church, or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but a sexually immoral, a greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Meaning, Inside the church, I know his language sounds really hardcore, it's a lot of stuff there we don't have time for, but the basic idea is that inside the church there will be accountability of community and people come together and hold each other to a certain standard. You can expect the people around you who you've invited into your life and your discipleship with vulnerability to have something to say about the way that we live. Outside the church, not so much. They don't even believe the same thing, so why begin with them? 
Notice, as in Colossians, distortions of God's ideal for sexuality are not the only things that Paul condemns. Here, in Corinthians, it's also greed and crooked, dishonest financial dealings, worshiping anything other than God, gossiping, getting drunk. And in our text tonight, it's all disordered desire, sexuality, greed, which Paul equates with worshiping something other than God. Sexual immorality is connected to and equated with what the Bible calls idolatry, which is worshiping something other than God, all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. In Paul's mind, disordered sexual desire is a failure to trust God's vision of goodness over your life, a failure to believe that what God says is best, or it's the decision to become the arbiter over what is good and what is evil for yourself rather than trusting what God says about it. That is the original sin of the garden. But there are other, more obvious, idolatrous dimensions to greed as well. In his commentary on the passage, Scott McKnight writes, Paul is probably intentionally evoking stories of material greed and indulgence at table and festal occasions so typical of high society in Rome. Paul connects greed to idolatry because the desire for money consumes a person's affections and mind. Scholar Brian Rosner writes, Greed as idolatry may be paraphrased as teaching that to have a strong desire to acquire and keep for yourself more and more money and material things is an attack on God's exclusive rights to human love and devotion, trust and confidence, and service and obedience. So Paul is saying, look at the world around you, little church in Colossae, in which God's paradigm for sexuality is is made to seem antiquated and out of touch, and in which having more, having excess, materialism, greed, careerism, get ahead, showcasing wealth, that's celebrated and and awarded with approval by the outside world. And Paul's saying, that's how that is out there. You have to do something different. All right, we're almost there. Stay with me. There's one more to the list. Look at verse 6. Because of these, everything he's mentioned so far, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Now, this collection of sins on the list are what we call disunity sins, the things that split and divide the family of God, things like harboring anger and resentment and unforgiveness toward one another, slandering one another, gossip, pettiness. Now, I do not mean to step on anyone's toes with what I'm about to say because I assume I'm going to infer a lot of people here because it's pretty common to the human experience, myself absolutely included. But a few short years of working at a church have been a discouraging tour of why Paul so often talks like this in his letters. We have become experts in excusing and even celebrating things like anger and gossip and slander and unforgiveness. If we feel wounded by someone, rightfully or less so, then we tend to puff up all sorts of, I would argue, abused or misused self-help mental catchphrases to excuse our unwillingness to navigate the hard work of restoration. So we warn others of our feeling triggered or we label people unsafe to lend credibility to our tantrums. And again, I'm speaking from experience. I have done this. And please hear me, I'm not saying that there's never any validity to those kinds of terms or ideas. 
But sometimes I honestly think, man, thank God that Jesus does not treat us this way. Thank God that Jesus is willing to restore us to relationship when we betray Him, or when we are untrustworthy, when we are unsafe people. And I know that, me personally, I have in the past misused these justifications to protect my own pride or to you know, kind of wallow in my own hurt feelings, my own stubbornness, rather than being led by the Spirit of God to radical, redemptive restoration. Learning to live in open vulnerability rather than pridely protective defensiveness. And churches simply cannot survive rigid egos and unforgiveness. How many people do you know, if you've been in the church for a little while, not even just this church, how many people do you know who have left communities or churches along those lines? On more than one occasion, I've learned that someone was mad at me over something that I said or did, and they had emptied all their venom for me in their communities or amongst their friends, detailing my awfulness to anyone who would listen, which always gets back to me somehow. By the way, I wish it didn't, believe me. But I only hear about it after they're gone, after they've quit. And there were times when I felt uh, innocent, you know, like it was unfair. And there were times when I knew that I was guilty. And I wondered what might have been different if the person came to me and told me how they were feeling, wanting to be reconciled and prepared to forgive me if I repented. Paul knew then what I've learned now, this breaks churches. And fascinatingly, he also includes in these dangerous lists of, or, or lists of dangerous ways of talking, destructive ways of talking, quote, filthy language from your lips. One scholar I read said that the Greek word here describes specifically vulgar and obscene language, what we would call cuss words. Now, I'm sure that the cussing Christians in the room haven't heard or, or have either heard or evoked the argument, the words don't matter, it just matters what's in your heart. But here, Paul is specifically referring to words deemed obscene and offensive by the host culture, or cuss words, swear words. Now, I'll put my table, cards on the table again and admit to you guys that I don't use swear words, not in private, not in public, not you know, when I'm mad or stub my toe, nothing like that. And it's not a righteousness thing. I realize it sounds really braggy, but I grew up Southern Baptist. My parents didn't cuss, so I missed the window of adolescence when Christian kids are mad at their parents and they learn to say cuss words. Now I would have to forcibly inject them into my vocabulary. I don't think it would sound cool at all. No, no one would believe it. Um, I did have the teenage angst phase, like everyone. I just missed the cussing book. Now, jokes aside, the cool Christian cussing movement is something of a bummer to me. It doesn't offend my fragile sensibilities or anything, but there were cuss words in the first century, just like there are cuss words in our language and culture, and Paul believes that this is one easy way that disciples of Jesus can be unique. It's so simple, it's so clear, and yet so often overlooked or just outright rejected. And this is the whole point of the text. Read the rest of verse 9. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. The, the language is a, an analogy of taking off an old outfit and putting on something different. One scholar I read this week argued that Paul is arguing for an alternative kind of moral fellowship. Again, a different way of life, set within, intermingled with, and yet completely unlike the culture around it. It's about holiness, 
a word that simply means entirely unique. I realize there's a lot of baggage with that word, but it's not about absolute moral standards. It just means totally unique, different, set apart, dedicated to something else. That is holiness. Now, um, one of our deacons who was reading my teaching and offering some feedback pointed out to me that cussing is often the outgrowth of things like either anger or apathy or really careless speech and unwillingness to be set apart. And that really is all the stuff that Paul has been beating up on throughout this passage. The Christians in Colossae were early adopters of the Jesus movement. They weren't raised in the church, so to speak. The world they knew, the life they lived, was until recently marked by all these things that no longer have any place in the new society of Jesus. They were stepping out of one way of life and into the other one in what must have seemed like an instant. And Paul likens that to an old set of clothes, filthy, ill-fitting, that one must shed completely in order to be dressed in holiness or uniqueness. All this stuff that Paul has been getting at, what it means to truly set your mind on the things of Jesus, to fill your minutes and hours and days with the presence of God until your heart and mind are slowly transformed by the Spirit of God. That is a new way of being human. It's not a hobby. It's not a set of static beliefs. It is a new way of life. And then read the ending, verse 11. Watch what happens. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian Scythian, slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all. Now, fun fact, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, barbarian was actually a Greek slur for uncivilized non-Greeks. And the reason is that it's actually an onomatopoeia because Greeks argued that any language other than Greek sounded to them like bar, 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 bar. <laughs> it's a true thing. Similarly, I, did, I really didn't make it up. Similarly, Scythian was uh, likely a word similar to the way that we would use something like hillbilly or white trash. It's a derogative for uneducated backwoods people. And it's easy to read this as a passage about equality. You know, there's neither barbarian nor Greek or slave or free. And of course, Paul believed in and he argues for equality all throughout the New Testament. But he's actually up to something really different here. The Christians in Colossae had been, up until then, appealing to their ethnicities and their upbringings and their respective heritages, where they'd come up, their socioeconomic uh, positions and cultural standings, as justification for moving beyond the bounds of Christian life. They, were, they would argue, well, I'm Jewish, so I do this, or saying, this is how I was raised as a Scythian, or, well, I'm a slave, so this is how my life is. I'm free, so this is the way I talk. And Paul is saying, listen, there is no longer any appeal to status or identity outside of Jesus. Again, from McKnight, identity emerges not from one's ethnicity, heritage, or status in the Roman Empire, but from Christ. And he does not mean that your ethnicity or nationality or heritage don't matter at all. No, what he means is that you, who you are in Jesus is ultimate. That is your truest identity. You belong to a new family, and it's a multinational, multi-ethnic community of men and women and children from all upbringings and cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds and statuses. Because we have this new and greater identity, the family of God, the church, is a true family. 
That is an incredible unifier. We have first century philosophers who gave thanks to fortune for their status and identity. This is an actual writing from the first century. Thanks to fortune first that I was born a human and not one of the brutes. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. Thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. And it wasn't just the Greeks who talked this way. The rabbis also wrote this way. Blessed art thou who did not make me a Gentile. Blessed art thou who did not make me a woman. Blessed art thou who did not make me a brute. So it's into this line of thinking that Paul is arguing, no, any identity or heritage or social standing that you believed made you less or more is null and void because the new identity you have been given in Jesus, which makes us brothers and sisters in the same family, living by the same code, belonging to the same new humanity, this is now your way of life. And Paul has this wonderful little flourish of language in the last line. Christ is all and is in all. Meaning Jesus is ultimate over everything. Jesus is all. And Jesus is in all. Whether they are Greek or Jew or civilized or hillbillies, Jesus is in all of them. And he reigns over all of them. And this is your new family. Now, to end I've only been alive for 38 years now. I've been following Jesus for something like 23, depending on what calendar I use. And I don't have the experience or wisdom of someone 10 years older than me, 20 years older than me. You know, I've traveled around the world talking to people about Jesus, but I'm no historian, no sociologist. But from my own little narrow experience, it seems to me in this time and in this place, there is more of an aversion than I've ever seen for what it means for the church to become a new way of life. There's more of an aversion to holiness in the true sense of the word. And there's all kinds of reasons for this. Some of us were raised in the kind of arbitrary and political puritanism of American evangelicalism, or we were kind of raised around it and we witnessed it. We've witnessed firsthand the embarrassing wreckage of the culture wars, of the often hateful, dominating presence of a pseudo-Christianity desperate to violently impose its power and legislation over everyone and everything, from who the state would recognize as legally married to what bad franchise coffee puts on their little plastic cups at Christmas time. And we were made to fear you know, rock music and rap lyrics and R-rated movies, and we were told to fear gay people and poor people, and we were told to be afraid of the Hollywood agenda and the evil Democrats, and some of us wanted out of the ugliness of the whole thing. We wanted a more thoughtful theology of art and entertainment. We wanted a more loving openness to people and culture. And we moved inch by inch, year by year, beyond the point of nuance, beyond the third way of Jesus, and became instead a new fundamentalism with a different uniform. All the efforts are the same. The extreme preoccupation with legislation as a moral imperative the aggressive campaign to censor and silence and cancel all art, entertainment, speech, and ideas that don't adhere to the handbook, the same angry political black and white moralism all grown up and moved from one side to the other. And in the journey to leave home, to rebel, to course correct, we marched right through the kingdom of God and out the other side, all the way over to the other extreme, the yin to the yang. And it was in the first century, our culture as it was in the first century, our culture is marked by the extremes and the ongoing battle between them. And there's more of an aversion than I've ever seen for what it means for the church to become a new way of life, to holiness 
in the true sense of the word, to be uniquely set apart and dedicated to something else. Because we worry, what will it say about me if I believe these things? If I embrace this way of life, will I be one of them, the bad guys? I can't become one of them. We want to be on the right side. We want our views on politics and pronouns and vaccines to define us and tuck us in at night. We wonder, what does my Instagram bio say about me as a person? We are drawing from an identity that is not Jesus, depending on it, deferring to it. And God is saying then and now, no, you have no allegiances to these things. If you follow Jesus, He is the rubric, the guide, the way, the truth, and the life. And what we do here as a church, how we live in love for one another and how we carry that love out into the world, our jobs, our schools, our relationships, is to be defined by Jesus and expressed through uniqueness or holiness. Not like them, not like the other them, like Jesus. He is the King over all of us, and He is in all of us. So, inevitably, we will be different very different. Our concern will not be about cultural relevance or political correctness or becoming the moral guardians of society beyond the church. Our concern will be practicing the way of Jesus together, loving one another, and loving the rest of the world. And as the culture oscillates around us, you will inevitably inevitably become a hero or a villain depending on the time and the place. It's always been this way. And I realize that if I don't die first, I've got a lot of years of learning and growing to do. But at this point, creeping up on 40, at this point in my discipleship, any fretfulness over cultural approval seems to further recede year by year for me, the more that I try to follow Jesus. Don't get me wrong, I do not want to become lost or out of touch in the cultural milieu. I I actually care about the world on my best day. I still love culture and new music and film and literature. I find the, you know, the things happening in culture at least interesting, if not hilarious and fascinating. Things like the culture war and the cancel culture and political zealousness. It's all very hilarious and fascinating. I have no interest in hiding away from the world or becoming terrified of the world. But I can see true holiness, uniquely living the truth of Jesus, is never going to make any sense to a world beyond the church And that's just fine. To live in the world without hiding from it, to fully embrace and passionately pursue holiness, that takes resilience and faithfulness. And resilience and faithfulness are in depressingly short supply. We have been calcified in flakiness and non-commitment, digital interaction, confrontation phobia, and aversion to accountability. I've been honest as of late about the way that this particular season of church has been for our church, and I'm sure many churches uh, in many ways, kind of discouraging, sorting through the destruction and debris of the post-pandemic community. And I read passages like this one that we've read tonight, and I realized that I just have no interest in compromise. So we can keep trying to find our footing as a church to somehow finally embrace faithfulness and commitment to hold one another accountable to truth and holiness with graciousness and love and humility and go forward together in the way of Jesus, to peel from our tired bodies the stinking, muddied, freezing rags of our old clothes and be dressed by God in something new, or we won't. 
and I'll bang the drum of hope until it bursts. I don't know. These things, holiness, faithfulness, they can seem impossibly uphill at a time like this for a community like ours. And yet, Paul's words ringing out over hundreds and hundreds of years of the church, Christ is all and is in all. Jesus is still king, and by his spirit, Jesus is with us and we are in him, so there's still hope. I won't claim to have holiness and faithfulness all figured out, but I want to know both and know them well, and I don't want to find them on my own because I can't. We need each other for that. So, Jesus, be for us all and be in us all. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to follow Jesus well. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.